we often hear of grace being defined as, as unmerited favor. And it's a, it's a, it's a good definition. And, and when we think, especially in terms of your salvation, your forgiveness of sin, you coming into a relationship with God, that you will be with God throughout the rest of eternity. Your salvation is by God's grace. Right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it is by grace through faith that you're saved. You only have two options. You, you can depend on God's grace for the forgiveness of your sin, or you can depend upon your own works and good deeds for the forgiveness of your sins. However, one of those is a better decision. Because when you get into heaven one day, your, your sins are not put on a scale with a balance with your good deeds versus your bad deeds. Your salvation and forgiveness of sins needs to be totally wiped out and gone. You can't have any. And so if you're depending upon your own works, hopefully you're getting the logic and going, well, that won't work, which should drive you to the grace of God because in God's grace, he paid for the penalty of your sin. When Jesus died on the cross, that was him paying the penalty for your sin. And by accepting that and saying, you know what, I'm going to depend upon Jesus' death on the cross for my forgiveness and my salvation, I'm trusting in that and in his resurrection God's grace steps in and says, I'm giving you exactly what you need. Your, your slate is wiped clean. Grace, unmerited favor. But it's, it's, it, grace isn't limited to just God's forgiveness of sin. We, we see grace spread throughout Scripture in a whole lot of different contexts. And, and this morning what I want to do is I want to look a little bit more deeply at what grace is. And I want to, this might sound odd, but make it more relevant um, make it a little bit more tangible. And, and so I'm going to redefine grace for you a little bit. And it's not that unmerited favor is wrong. I like that definition. I'm kind of expanding upon it a little bit. Um, I know at times, Laura and I would say to one of our sons, you, you need to show your brother grace. Well, if I'd said to them, you need to show your brother unmerited favor, that just seems even more confusing, doesn't it? Like, what, what do you mean by that? And then, and then I think, well, isn't everything that God gives us unmerited? Is there anything that I have that somehow I, God owed me? And the answer is no. Every, everything is unmerited. So am I supposed to do something with grace? It sort, of, it sort of took the place, there we are, of, of I don't know about you, but on my laptop at one time I had that little Intel Inside sticker, you know? And, and I don't know what that is. I trust it's working, and I trust it's doing something, and it helps my computer in some way, and so I just, like, let it do what it's doing, whatever that is. And, and I felt like that's what grace was in my life. It was just like this thing God gave to me. Thanks. Am I, like, I suppose it's working because you tell me it's working, and it's making my life better, I guess. Are you, I don't know if you relate to that. Uh, and, and, so, and so when I came across this passage, and if you want to turn with me to 2 Corinthians 8, it's, it's this nice, tangible example of grace. And we're going to pull out a different, an extended definition from this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 1, 
Let me give you a little background here so you understand what we're reading. Uh, you could, if you read in 1 Corinthians, Paul had written to that church saying, I would like you to set aside a collection of money for the churches and the believers in Jerusalem. Uh, at this period in history, they're going through immense persecution. Uh, there was actually a famine in the land. And because they were believers and they were in this new blasphemous sect of Judaism, no one would hire them. And so they were really, really struggling. And so Paul was going to a lot of the churches that he had relationships with and saying, let's, let's collect some money and I'll take it to the churches of Jerusalem to help them through this time. And here in 2 Corinthians, he's reminding them of this. Uh, he, he's sending, I think, Titus to go pick up the collection, and he's kind of like putting a spark there to say, don't forget, I hope it's something worthwhile. You're not just going to be like, yeah, here's a 20. Um, and, so, and so he uses the Macedonian church as an example to them. So here we go. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving." I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And here's my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. And I'm not seeing my slide, but that's okay. Uh, what's the definition that I want to add here to grace? It's there in verse 14. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. And so grace isn't just unmerited favor. Hey, there it is. I do not have that on my pad. Is that possible? I just thought I'd let you know for a future. Uh, um, and, so, and so I like this definition. It's, it's workable. I know what to do with this. If I'm praying for grace, I know what it is that I'm thinking of specifically. If I'm showing grace to somebody else, I know what question to be asking. To supply what is necessary is grace. To supply what is necessary 
here's, um, oh, you know what? No, it's my fault because I skipped a whole section. But that's all right because we've got to get keep moving through. And so we, we see verses like this. In Acts 15, it says that Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. What's, what is that saying? We, we were entrusting them to God's care, right? We were trusting that God is going to provide what they needed. I get that. That makes sense there. Here in Ephesians 3, Paul writes, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Oftentimes, because grace is God supplying what we need, grace is often an empowerment. It's, it's God giving you the ability to accomplish his will. Does that make sense? And, and so you see often, and you'll see these next couple of verses, the idea of power associated with it. And so we see that here. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. He goes on, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Here, grace isn't just unmerited favor. It's an ability, it's an empowering to minister to the Gentiles. Acts 4. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. There we get both ideas. God's power to supply what is necessary. Do you see it? Stephen is called a man full of God's grace and power. And he performed great wonders and signs among the people. Let me hit you with two more here. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul writes, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. According to the grace of God given to me, I was able to do this. One more. 1 Corinthians 15. For I am the least of the apostles, right, Paul? Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And I really want to highlight the duality here. I don't know if it's still raging, but a couple of years back, there was some debate in uh, theological circles. How much grace depend on? Is everything grace? How much of our own efforts do we depend on? Is it all our own efforts? If you notice in these last two passages, it's, it's, it's this duality. It's a combination of the two. Uh, but it always starts with God's grace. It always starts with God's grace. And so God shows you grace. He gives you something that is needed. And we're going to see this in a minute. But God never gives grace just for you. He gives grace for you to show and to do something with. Does that make sense? So God gives you grace, and at this point you make a decision. Am I going to do something with it or not? Well, here's where the effort comes in. You step out 
in faith and you do something with it. You, you follow through on whatever it is that you feel God is calling to you to do, whatever scripture tells you to do. And here's what we find. We're going to see this as another principle. God increases the grace. And this cycle begins. God's grace. I obey. God gives me more grace. In fact, more responsibility. I step out and I obey. God says, cool, here's even more grace. Are you with me? And so it just continues. And that's called spiritual maturity. Todd spoke about this last week. Uh, in fact, if I make a, a side note here real quick, there is, there is nothing that is said from this pulpit or that you would read from Scripture that you shouldn't automatically assume is to be done in accordance with God's grace. It's, it's never 100% your effort. It should always, always be God's grace. If the speaker, if I didn't say it, you just like assume it. If I said, we're going swimming today, you'd make some assumptions. We're going to swim in water. This is, this is like that. I say, hey, be sure to love your neighbor. And you go, mm, by God's grace. Does that make sense? Hey, you, you, whatever it is, you, you could probably give more sacrificially. Yeah, with God's grace. Always, always by God's grace. Let me catch myself up to my notes. Ah, we're good. All right, so now we're at these three principles. Three things that you should know about God's grace. Yeah, I'm getting used to this thing too. Three things you should know about God's grace. Um, go, go back with me to 2 Corinthians 8. Let me reread those first five verses to you. Because it's a really remarkable thing. And, and what I love about this passage is the, whole, is the Macedonian churches were showing grace. But then Paul looked at that whole, that whole scenario and said, well, that was, all of that was God's grace. That was by God's grace. Anyway. Verse 1, and now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Here's, here's what seems to be happening if you're reading between the lines. Paul perhaps mentions, they know what his itinerary is, and so he says, you know, I'm going to send Titus to, to pick up this collection that the Corinthians church uh, are given to the believers, and, and the Macedonians go, well, you, you didn't ask us to be part of that. And he says, yeah, guys, you're already in extreme poverty. That's what he says. You're in extreme poverty. I, I wasn't going to ask that of you. And so, and so they go, what a neat church. They go to the Lord to find out, well, what does God want to do? Like, we respect you, Paul, but we're going to find out what God wants us to do. And, and so they go before God and they seek him. And, and in God's grace, they seem to receive a very definite answer. Be part of it. Give. And so they go back to Paul. Paul, we, we want to be part of this. We want to give. And Paul says, guys, I'm not taking a penny from you. It's not happening. 
And so why, why do I assume that? They pleaded with us. I mean, I mean that's got to be, a, we just didn't come once. You, you rejected, they, Paul, no, we, please, let us do this. We want to do this. Isn't that amazing? In their extreme poverty, he says, in the most severe trial, God's grace kicked in and said, here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be part of giving. And, and their joy came, God's grace. What is it that these Macedonians understood about God's grace? It's a verse you're probably familiar with. Go, go to your right, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Macedonians got that, didn't they? We, there, there, is, there is nothing, we could not give too much that God's grace won't come in and supply what is necessary. There's, there's, there's no limit. Where am I at? We'll come back to it. I'm sorry that I get stuck on this thing. There, there's no limit to God's grace. And, and go look at verse 10. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. By the way, I have heard at times someone sort of quote that verse. Hey, like an encouragement. God's able to make all grace abound to you. And then someone comes in and goes, you know, the context of that verse is just about financial giving. I say baloney. That, that's the context you're right on. But the principle goes far beyond giving. That's, a, that's what he said in chapter 8, that you share in this grace of giving. But there's a grace of serving. There's a grace of teaching. There's a grace of everything that you do to meet and supply somebody's need is grace. And when you do it, God comes in and he supplies your need. But, but catch this, because it goes with there's no limit. Not only does he supply it, but he increases it. That's what he says here. He increases it. A great example of grace is the feeding of the 5,000. You know this miracle. It is a very unique miracle in that Jesus performed it twice. And maybe that's not so unique, except that every one of the gospel writers includes it. And many of them included it twice. Rather than saying, you know, do we really need to talk about the feeding of the 4,000? It already happened back here. He did the 5,000. It's pretty much the same thing. They, they included it. What, it's, it's a great example of grace, and I think is the whole point of that miracle. What's happening? If you know the story, Jesus has spent the day with this large crowd teaching them, 5,000 plus people. And he looks upon them, and he, he has compassion on them. And he says, they're hungry. And I love that part. God's grace in just the mundane. I see what they need. That's one, they're hungry. And so he goes to the disciples, right? And he says, hey, feed them. And they're like, are you joking? Right? They have this, like, what do you, what do you want us to do, Lord? 
And he says, what do you have? Because God's grace is enough. Whatever it is, I'll work with it. And so they show up with a couple bread and fish, right? And God, Jesus goes to work and he begins to multiply it. And, and was, it, was it just enough to like tide them over till they got home? No, the, the, the scripture writers are clear in saying they were filled. They were totally satisfied. They were like, that was a buffet type feeling. And if you know the story, what are they left with? Extra. Baskets of leftovers. That's the grace of God. I take what little you have. You step out in faith. And I come in with my grace. And I supply not only what you need, but I multiply it and give even more. What a great God. How amazing is that grace? I'm looking at my time, so we're going to skip and skip. I know you're like, no. Am I? All right, I'm not. You know why? If we go long, I want you to blame Paul. Because, because he chose that hymn, Grace Greater Than I Sin. And so we have to do this. Here's, here's think about that in, in relation to Romans 3 through 6. If you know those passages, I mean, they're great passages, and we use them often to share the gospel. But they really are passages in Romans 3, 4, 5, and 6 that are speaking to the believer. They're, they're really about the grace of God, not just that brought you to Christ, but that continues to sustain and provide for you throughout your Christian life. And so, and so we read a verse like this in Romans 5. It says, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. There's grace. I, I go to God with my sin, and he says, yeah, I, I see what you need. Number one, forgiveness, and it's yours. Isn't that a great thing? That, that, that we run, we run to grace, or do you run to grace? I remember reading a, a, a news story. Uh, police officer pulled over uh, these two people, and I forget exactly what the details, but I think they had drugs in the car. And so as soon as they stopped, they got out and ran. And, and so they ran till they found somewhere where they could hide, and they jumped, they climbed, scaled this wall, uh, and jumped over, and it was the outside wall of a women's prison. <laughs> That's a great example of running from grace. You, you just end up in the same place, if not worse. But God's grace says, no, 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 I forgive. Don't run from it. Not only do I give, but I will increase it. I will provide what you need and then some. His grace increases. And so the logical response is you go, well, what should we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And he says, uh, by no means, no. No, what, what, don't you understand? It's a different context of looking at grace. Imagine that you have that rich, wealthy uncle who, who I mean, has unlimited money. And so you find yourself strapped financially. You're in debt. You go to the rich uncle. You say, hey, could you help me out? I'm in debt. He says, yeah, how much do you need? And so you tell him the amount. You go off. You pay off the debt. And then you're in debt again. And you go back and you say, 
hey, could you help me out? He says, yeah, how much do you need? You give him the amount of the debt, you go off, you pay the debt, and you continue to live in debt. Now, did you catch the part where I said, you have a rich uncle who has unlimited means? And did you catch his question, how much do you need? Why in the world are you still living in debt? Are you getting this? If you've got a rich uncle with the means to provide for you infinitely, not only should you not be living in debt, you should be giving money to other people. I've got overflow. Here's some money. And that's this. Why in the world do you continue to live in sin when you've got a God of grace? Should we keep on? Should I keep spending money till I'm like broken in debt? No. You should be like overflowing in grace and like giving it out to others. That's his point. And I love, you know, and then he ends with, with right? Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the charisma of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know what word gets translated there? I know you do. But the what? The gift. It's a weird Greek word. If you know your Greek, and I bet many of you know this word, the word charis means grace. And, and then Paul does this weird thing. He puts the suffix, the ma suffix, onto charis. And so, and so he, turns, he turns a noun into another noun, which we never do in English, which is why we had to like come up with some other word. Uh, we see it in Ephesians 2, 10, where it says, you are God's workmanship. It's the word poema. It's the word poe, which means achieve. And he throws the ma suffix on there, suffix, and now it's achievement. Does that make sense? And so here it's, it's, it's a grace-ment, a, a grace-nation, a grace-nosity. Like there's no word because we just don't do that. We don't take a noun and turn it into another noun. And so it's, if there's any word that would work, it'd be gracing. The gracing of God. It, it actually turns it into this active, constant, you have been given the gracing of God to have eternal life, abundant, full, unlimited living. All right, next thing you should know. It's primarily concerned with your spiritual maturity. God's grace is primarily concerned with your spiritual maturity. And so what do we see there in 2 Corinthians with the Macedonian church? They were in the most severe trial and extreme poverty. God didn't rescue them from that. He gave them joy. He, he met their needs, but he didn't just step in and say, hey, butterflies and rainbows for everybody. Because, again, he's primarily concerned with your spiritual maturity. Do you get, God looks upon you and he says, do you know what you really need? You need holiness. You need to be more like the image of my son. Because when you are, that's where peace and fullness of life will be found. Do you get that? So you're going, hmm, no, I, I think I'd, I'd really rather just have freedom from anxiety. And God says, that's not going to achieve what you really need. You'll find it in me. I'll, I'll walk you through it. We'll have the grace. But ultimately, I'm doing a work that is what you, what you ultimately need. And so, and so you know this passage, right? Second Corinthians 12. Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing 
greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. We don't know exactly what this is, but it sounds horrible. A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. And this is grace. That thorn in the flesh was an act of God's grace. Why? I'm calling on you this time. You see it. You're a smart crew. What is the grace here? Keep, you got it. To keep him from being conceited. God was looking on the heart of Paul and saying, oh man, you're getting really arrogant, buddy. <laughs> you're starting to think this is all about you. That's going to lead you to ruin. I know what you need. You need a thorn in the flesh right here. That's God's grace. That's God's grace. Of course, he goes on to say, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Where are we at? Let's go all the way down. All right, one last part. God's grace has no limit. It's primarily concerned with your spiritual maturity. Last thing, and I mentioned this already, God's grace is given to you so you can give it to others. God's grace is given to you so you can give it to others. By the way, any passage you look at that talks about the spiritual gifts, the word for gifts is charisma. It's the same thing. I, I have graced you so that you can build up the body of Christ, so that you can encourage others, so that you can teach so that you can give generously. I have graced you so that you do something with it. This is not easy. Amen? Do you remember who are, who are 40 days of purpose? Remember those days? Do you remember the EGR? My, I, know, I know my wife. I heard it. Extra grace required. Do you remember him talking about sometimes God brings that EGR person into your life who just needs that extra grace? You know who I'm talking about. There's probably someone that, they're like, man, they're draining. Like, they're needy. Their needs are like above and beyond other people. And, and so they just require extra grace. That's not easy. Sometimes it's not easy because you don't know what grace is supposed to look like in the situation. That, that relative who doesn't spend money very wisely, what does grace look like there? Do we, do we bail him out or do we let him like accept his consequences? Have you had these kind of situations? What does grace look like right here? And so what do you do with that? Well, I would encourage you to do what the Macedonians did. They gave themselves first to the Lord. If that's where your grace is coming from, it makes sense to start there. And you seek out the Lord. What does grace look like in this situation? It's not going to always look the same because people's needs are the same, are different, I mean.